Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm going to show you the camp, how it looks like. All, all you have to do is just drive down Notre Dame. And you're going to see a whole bunch of tents. I mean, uh, as long as you see where the bicycle path is, you, the moment you see a whole bunch of tents, that's where we are. It's wonderful, man. It's like a, a townhouse. It's October, and Michel Gru is showing off where he lives. He's also explaining his nickname, Pitbull. I got ears, I got eyes behind my back, and I see everything. That's why they, they call me Pitbull. Michel lives on a tree-lined strip of grass that separates busy Notre-Dame Street from the quieter Montreal neighborhood of Oshlaga. It's a narrow park, more a kind of glorified median strip with a bike path running through it. This community is new, a sort of city within a city. Like any community, the people who live here have different backgrounds and come from different places. The big difference is... This one is made up entirely of tents. Well, there are a handful of trailers. Tent cities like this have sprung up across the country since the beginning of the pandemic. This one grew over the summer, just east of downtown Montreal. Michel made his way to Montreal in February, just before the pandemic hit. I was in Gatineau, and uh, I lost my job, and I lost my apartment. He came to Montreal to look for some friends of his. When he got here, he spent some time in shelters before setting up his tent on this strip of grass in July. Actually, I got, I don't have one tent, I got two. I got one to sleep on, and I got my stock room. My stock room is where all my clothes goes. So all my clothes goes on shelves, and the rest goes in the bins. But then, 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 then. I have a shelf with all a bunch of uh, stuff like uh, candles and uh, peanut butter, uh, and I have a bed. I have a wood frame, uh, a futon wood frame with a double bed on it, and yeah, this is, that's where I sleep. Some who live at the campground were evicted from their apartments. Others have been living in shelters, but left because they were afraid of catching COVID-19. The tents in the park seemed like a better, safer option. Not everyone in the surrounding neighborhood is a fan of the tent city. Some say they don't feel safe here anymore. But campground residents say they found a home, and they are determined to stay unless they can get subsidized apartments, ones they can afford. Because for a lot of people in this tent community, this is the best it's been for a long time. Your own tent your own space, your own life. Freedom. That's what we have. Freedom. Yep. If you sleep on the street in a back alley, 
I mean, it's, it's not the same that when you're here. Here we have a tent. And when it rains, it doesn't rain on your head. When you live in a back alley, I mean, this is not home for you. This is living on the street. I mean, some of some of us, you should see the inside of the uh, inside of the tent how we uh, how we are. I mean, uh, we have a bed, we have everything except a TV. We don't have a TV, but I mean, uh, it's like an apartment, a little bachelor. I know at least uh, 95 people around here. Yeah, it's pretty neat. There's good people, and uh, well, there's people that they they, they they work during the day, and other people, uh, well, they do nothing. Everybody knows each other. It's like uh, one of those uh, other big campground where the Winnebago and everybody uh, gets along, and uh, or when you go in camping or something. But things are getting more complicated. A living situation that might have been okay for the summer is getting harder. As on top of COVID-19 and a lack of affordable housing, the people who live here are now facing a third crisis. Winter. People living in homeless camps around the city are getting ready to face the winter and community groups want to help. The city's homeless population has, has doubled during this pandemic and now that winter is on our doorstep. Their situation the is becoming even more dire. The crisis has been front dire. and center since the start of this pandemic. I'm AC Rowe and this is The Doc Project. Today, Michelle's story. One man in one encampment, in one part of the country, in his own words. We hired Michel and paired him up with a producer, Jayla Bernstein, got him his own audio recorder and invited him to document his daily life at the encampment for three crucial weeks, from October to November, as winter moved in. Michel agreed. He wanted to bring us into his world, beyond the headlines. Sometimes what Michel is saying is a little hard to make out. This is his first time reporting, and he's got a lot to contend with. Every day I'm going to tell you a little bit of my story. The only thing I'm going to ask you guys is listen. Like what Michelle just said there with the generator going in the background. He said, every day I'm going to tell you a little bit of my story. The only thing I'm going to ask you guys is listen. So lean in. Michelle will take it from here. Good morning. Uh, this is uh, Wednesday the 28th. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. Uh, this is our first snow falling. It didn't last long. It lasts like five minutes. But we had snow this morning, as you believe it or not. And uh, it's cold. It's very cold. And uh, that's why I'm going through every, uh, each tent to see uh, if everybody's fine, if everybody's okay. Uh, I'm security. I'm the watchdog, by the way. <laughs> and my work is to make sure that uh, everybody's fine. Everybody have, you know, safety. Safety comes first. We do have people consuming, uh, but I always ask them to make sure, you know, if you want to consume, consume in your tent. We don't want to see it. And as well, uh, we don't want cops to be here uh, every day and arrest people for uh, stupidities and stuff like that. And more about this campground. Well, 
we're doing our best to stay here as, as long as we can, even if, even if it's going to get cold uh, this winter. The reason why we're here doing the campground is to uh, send a message to the mayoress just to make sure that we get our apartment. We don't want to go to centers and stuff. We're trying to get an apartment. You know, everybody could decide to leave if they want to. Nobody's leaving because we're doing this for a cause. Whoever's still here is the one that's going to stay here all winter. But for today, this is all. And I'll talk to you another, another time. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. It gets pretty cold that night, and uh, I'm worried about uh, other people that uh, are camping with us. Yeah, at night, when it went down to uh, minus three, and we woke up next day, and uh, there was ice everywhere. <laughs> That's cold. Some of us are okay, but some other ones, uh, like uh, the older ones, uh, you know, I'm pretty scared that uh, I don't want to find them dead in their tent. So I provide them any assistance. I do more, more turns to make sure that people are okay. Uh, if they need any uh, blankets or candles, there's always a bus coming around here at night if they need uh, to go to any centers and stuff like that. Some people will leave soon because now it gets colder and it's gonna get colder. I mean, November's coming, and it's going to get real cold. It's going to get minus 6, minus 10. And when it, comes, when it comes to minus 10, people are not going to stay here. People think that, uh, oh, it's going uh, to be okay. No, no, it's not going to be okay. Last night, in the middle of the night, we actually had fire people uh, coming over to make sure that everybody's fine because uh, it was cold last night. Every time we uh, organization comes here and asks us what we need, we kind of usually tell them uh, big tarps because uh, there's big tents need to be covered for the winter and uh, that's, that comes always handy. You don't want your, uh, your roof to, to clap over uh, your, your head when you're sleeping. That's one, that's one thing you don't want. Um, these couple days were so busy that I couldn't even have the chance to uh, put down a couple things on the recording. I'm going to talk about a little bit of my story now. Um, the last time I was talking about, uh, I don't remember. <laughs> but anyway, um, when I first came here in Montreal in 1990, I was in need because I was on the street. And me and my buddy uh, joined the army. He was deployed in, uh, at the uh, 13th uh, Regiment Valcartier Paramatic. And I said, well, well, you know what? If my buddy's gonna go there, well, I'm gonna follow him. And I did. I used to be in the army before. I used to be in the service. I'm a, a 13th Regiment Valcartier Paramatics. My job is to, uh, if somebody got hurt, well, I give them uh, needs to uh, before the helicopter comes to uh, bring them to uh, 
safety to so they could get uh, fixed up. My job is to make sure that uh, I patch them. I make sure they're okay before uh, they went away. And my also job was uh, when I was going to places, if I see any uh, hands, arms, legs, I tie them and I put them uh, into a bag and send them to make sure that uh, it didn't belong to us. Those guys wasn't, you know, it's it's not one of our guys. And sometimes I, we tag babies, mothers, things like that. Yeah, it's not an easy job. I, I do have nightmares sometimes. Sure, you want to see countries. Sure, you want to you want to travel. It's not always good. Sometimes you get shot. Sometimes uh, we sometimes we get bombed. But it's not an easy sight. And I always say to people, if you, somebody come to me says, oh, I want to join the army, he says, yeah. Well, think about it before you want to do that. Serve your country, yeah. But uh, when it comes to you, taking care of you, you know, they give you uh, a pension after that, and they let you go. They don't take care of you. You got to take care of your own self. I do have a pension coming in to me, but, but I'm not ready to get my pension yet because I'm still capable to work. I'm not, I'm not ready to quit. Yeah. I wanted to do that a long time ago. Actually, you could, I could help somebody with that. I wanted, I, long time ago, I wanted to be a fireman. But when I went to the army, I, it's, you know, it's not the same to be a fireman and to be in the army. Firemen, you help people outside. I mean, in the army, you shoot people. It's not the same. And I wanted to be a rescuer, not to shoot people. Today is Thursday, the 29th. It's eight o'clock in the morning and everybody's getting up. I'm going around and do my rounds still to make sure that everybody's okay. Everybody's still warm. Everybody's still living. I'm gonna tell you a little bit of uh, the campground <coughs> story. Um, we have a, a guy named Guilain. He's got a, a Winnebago. He started with a small kitchen with a little burner and stuff like that. And today, we have a big kitchen. I'm the one that uh, did the installation of the kitchen. We have a freezer, we have a fridge. We could cook. We serve at least uh, 700 and 900 coffee a day. We got three meals a day. We got breakfast, lunch, and supper. We have uh, snacks at night sometimes. You have to come down here and just to see how, how we live and how the tents are, because we have nice tents. We got small, big, but it's, uh, it's a wonderful sight though. We, uh, in the military, uh, especially when you get deployed in places like Iraq, uh, you think you're gonna sleep in the tent. The first couple of times you don't sleep, you sleep uh, back to back to your, to your partner. 
just to stay up because all you hear is bombing and and shooting and stuff like that so you have to be prepared because when you get to a places like that uh, you never know uh, when they come behind you and uh, take you by surprise you, you don't sleep anywhere no there's no guns here so how are you guys i'm with Guilain. Guilain owns a little trailer with uh, with a van and uh, with a little uh, female uh, pit bull named misha and uh, Guilain, well, he's here uh, to help everybody. I mean, uh, he's like me. Uh, I live in my trailer for over uh, two years now. I was living in my van for four years before. It's six years I've been living in a trailer in a truck. People knock on my uh, trailer at the night and uh, they ask if they need something. Uh, we, we, we need some people responsibility for just to do what we do because if we leave it loose, it will get out of hand. Oh, yeah. It's going to be a free fall. <laughs> We had another tent over there that uh, the guy left because uh, he, f he fought with people all the time. And we don't tolerate uh, any violent stuff. So uh, the guy was fighting, fighting all the time. So uh, we told him to leave. <laughs> That's my job. And there is no law here. I mean, if they want to start doing uh, their uh, head trip, I'm the one that stops them. All right, so, <laughs> oh my God. This is getting worse. People are leaving. Uh, well, they leave their stuff there, so we have to end up cleaning up. This is supposed to be uh, a campground, uh, a safe place to go around, and, uh, and now it's becoming a trash place. And there's a little bit more on the other side, too. I mean, there's a... Uh... Oh my God. I don't believe what I see. It's not supposed to be like this. And this, this, this breaks me right down because I cleaned this all before. There is junk. I mean, this is not good. I don't know what to do. I'm just gonna burn it all. That's all. The community around here accept us. They let us camp here. And I'm we're grateful because we're trying to keep this place as quiet as possible and clean as possible. You know, we don't want to push them away. I mean, it's their place and they accept us. So we're trying to uh, clean the place as much as we can. We have some people screaming and say, ah, get a job, I ah, get a disc. You know what? It's not by choice we're here. Uh, some of us can get a job, some of us can get an apartment. We're trying to get help as much as we can. And by them screaming at us, it mean, doesn't help. Well, why, don't, why, don't, why don't you take our place? Then you'll see. How can we get a job? How can we get a job without a place? Seriously. Can I get a job even if I'm still living in the, in the park? No. You need an apartment to get a job. We're not going to get accepted. Oh, I, I live at the Salvation Army. Uh, well, thank you, no, you know. I mean, you need an apartment and you need an address. A real one.
before my mom died, I wasn't not doing very good in school because when I was young, I had problems to learn. And uh, I mean, there are 17 kids of us in my family. There's nine brothers and eight sisters. And uh, me, uh, after uh, mom died, we all got everybody uh, everybody on the need of 18 we, we we got placed in foster parents and foster groups you know um, how can I say this it's not with the family you were born with but it's the family you choose to be with I choose to be here because this is my family we are a big family here and uh, all we need is uh, we want our own place to live, like uh, an apartment. That's what we need. And we're not going to stop until we get it. Everybody needs their own place. Centers is not the same if you have your own place. I mean, the centers, you have rules to obey. All the centers, I'm going to tell you, it's they're all, some of them, they're okay, some of them, they're not. If you want to have a bed or something like that, you get in line at 9 o'clock in the morning and we get in at eight o'clock at night. Uh, every day it's a, it's a one step forward for uh, the things that we need from the mayoress. Today I uh, heard that uh, she's gonna talk about uh, our situation. Montreal is preparing a lot more space for the city's homeless population this year. Mayor Valérie Plante announced the details and of this colder, darker weather. The province today announced its plan to tackle homelessness as uh, winter is approaching here in Quebec. Uh, in Montreal, along with other measures, more than 1,650 places will be made The Place du Puy Hotel downtown will transform into an overnight shelter with about 380 beds. In the morning, the STM will run shuttles to bring people experiencing homelessness to other warm places. This will all start next week, so it kicks off on November the 3rd and will last until the end of March. And joining us now is Sam They, they offer us a hotel room and everything like that. But you have to give it to be out at 8 o'clock in the morning and, uh, and they want to put us in a, a day center. But a day center, it's not an interesting uh, place. I like better to be in my trailer and some people like better to be in the tent. The thing is, it's, okay, it's at the government hotel. It's 200 bucks a night for one person. So count 200 bucks for 30 days. I think with that much money, you could rent two apartments with that. There's been a lot of excitement going around since uh, two days. There's been a lot of people coming over here, bring us uh, stuff, clothing. Uh, we have barbecue. We have uh, people coming in and uh, give us uh, gas money and stuff like that. Hey! So he's the one that gave us uh, the internet. So uh, Tommy, Tommy, explain well, what you did, man. An Anglian English? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I came on site to uh, bring some uh, vegetables and I realized there was a lack of uh, communications over here. So uh, I bring my antennas and wires and everything and uh, hooked up an internet line 
and uh, now I have about a uh, thousand feet of coverage of uh, internet around here. <laughs> we, we could get everything. We could get movies. We could get uh, uh, music. music. Uh, entertainment. Yeah. You know, you know, even even if they live uh, homeless, a uh, little relief at the end of the day. It's uh, it's great. You know. We're great police here, huh? So we got internet everywhere. Um, one more thing that I, that I almost forgot to tell you. I found this girl. Her name is uh, Danielle. She's 40 years old. Whoever thought I'm gonna find love in the first sight in a camping ground. You know, things like this don't, doesn't come every day. She's funny, she's beautiful, and she makes me happy. But you think life stops right here? No. We're still doing camping. We're still we're still here. We're still for our cause. But anyway, you know, like a, a day like this, well, we take it day by day because it's a nice day. I have a new girlfriend uh, that I met a couple of days ago, and um, and we found a squirrel on the street, and. I don't know if he was scared or something like that, but he wanted to crawl uh, in, in, in my girlfriend's pants. So I said, oh, no, no, no. But um, I have him in the cage of a, a cat cage, and I feed him and everything. So, yeah, I have a new partner. I have a squirrel. So can you imagine a pit bull raising a squirrel? That's pretty funny. I'm going to have to let you go, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Hi, it's me again. Today is Tuesday. There was a tragedy here last night, in the middle of the night. You know I told you about my squirrel, Frisco? And if it was not because of Frisco, I could be burned. I could be burned down in the, in the tent somewhere. Last night I went to bed, thought that, you know, everything is okay. I lit up some candles and stuff like that. But what happened in the middle of the night? Who saved my life? Frisco. Frisco, my squirrel, saved my life. If he didn't scream and start banging on, on the cage to wake me up, I could have been burnt in my tent last night. Not a stranger, not a human being came, came to help me, but a squirrel. I'm grateful, maybe there is a purpose. Have you ever hear a pit bull cry? I lost a few things. On the, in the fire, I lost a few things, but you know what? It's, they're just things. It's a good thing that I didn't lose my life in it. Listen to this. Everything you have in life, don't take it for granted. I will leave you, and hopefully uh, one day we'll uh, talk to each other again. Hear a little bit of my stories. And uh, you know what? Thank you very much. And hopefully uh, we'll see each other again. Bye-bye.
That doc was reported by Michel Gru from the Notre Dame encampment in Montreal. It was produced by Jayla Bernstein and edited by Allison Cook with me. Since we wrapped up recording that doc, warming stations have been set up around the city for winter. And campers have access to a nearby shelter with warm showers that they can use even if they don't stay there. Some of the campers have left to stay at a hotel. Michel remains adamant that he won't return to a shelter. He recently took over a tent trailer left behind by someone who moved out of the encampment. It's parked on a side street near his tent. And he says once he's cleaned it up and insulated it for the winter, he plans on moving in. The mayor of Montreal maintains that the campers will not be forced to leave against their will. But if someone is considered to be a danger to themselves, it is possible they could be removed. That includes being at risk of frostbite. The province has said it hopes to have more information about long-term housing in the spring, but they have yet to announce anything concrete. Coming up after the break, a story about the time-traveling power of scent and what happens when you lose it. Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest. And I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking For It. Subscribe now. I want you to think of your favorite smells. For me, a split orange. When you break it with your thumbs and there's that fine mist. Old books, that's a classic. The top of a puppy's head. The smell of a campfire. I recently started making my own candles. I don't know, pandemic hobbies, right? But it's made me think about scent in a new way. Sandalwood and rose, amber and oak moss. Not just about the scents themselves, but crucially, which smells I am willing to risk associating with this time period forever. Because smell, it takes you places. And that makes it powerful. Like, there was this one summer where I wore a specific perfume, every day. I loved it. I put it away for the winter. The next spring, I took it out again, caught a whiff, and bam, I felt horrible. And suddenly, catching that scent, I realized, wow, I was really depressed last summer. The perfume took me right back to that place. I put it away. The rest of the bottle is still in my bottom drawer. I can't even give it to a friend because I don't want my friends to smell like misery. That's what smell can do. Sometimes you can try to control it, but sometimes it has control over you and you have no idea what kind of stunt it's gonna pull. This past year, it pulled one hell of a stunt on Stephen Smith. This is his story. Stephen will take it from here. It was Sunday, March 22nd of this year. 
I had spent that cold, sunny day with my wife, Karina, and our five-year-old daughter, Isla, getting groceries and going for a walk in a park near our home in Montreal. It was just 10 days after the pandemic had been declared, and, like everyone else, we were anxious about keeping our distance and not getting sick. Dinner that day was like any other Sunday. We took our time cooking, had a drink, and gave Isla the 10-minute countdown to turning off her movie. I remember looking out the window as I set the table and noting the days getting longer. Spring was coming. The pandemic couldn't take that away. Finally, it was time to eat. I don't recall what we cooked, but about five minutes into our meal, it dawned on me that something was wrong. I couldn't smell the food. I could still taste it, but the flavors were muted. Nothing was really standing out. I told Karina I couldn't smell, but neither of us thought much of it beyond the fact it was strange. We finished the meal, cleaned up, put Isla to bed, and got on with our night. This was back in March. Up until then, no one was talking about smell loss as a symptom of COVID-19 infection. All eyes were on the fearsome threesome of fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath. But that night, I started to wonder if my sudden smell loss and the pandemic might be connected. I took my phone to bed and googled smell loss and COVID. Among the first hits was a New York Times article published that same day, reporting that many victims of COVID-19 had experienced a sudden loss of smell and taste. Karina and I had both developed a cough a few days earlier, but didn't think much of it. We hadn't been traveling and didn't know anyone who had covid Our only time outside the house was limited to socially distanced walks or brief forays to get groceries and wine. We figured our cough was just another cold that our daughter had brought home from daycare like so many scribbly works of art. So my loss of smell, it couldn't be COVID. But there it was, in the glare of the New York Times on my phone screen. Lost sense of smell may be peculiar clue to coronavirus infection. According to the article, Italian doctors had concluded that loss of taste and smell is an indication that a person who otherwise seems healthy is in fact carrying the virus and may be spreading it to others. Spooked and trying not to panic, I ran upstairs to tell Karina, who I found on the couch nursing some sudden aches and pains. She told me not to worry and get some sleep. I don't remember if I slept that night, but I'll never forget the days that followed. Karina developed a high fever and her cough grew more persistent, especially at night. It was a deep, dry, raspy cough that matched everything I was reading and hearing about COVID-19. Karina suffers from asthma and I've been in hospital with her before for bouts of the flu that left her struggling to breathe. Assuming this was COVID, I was worried it was only a matter of time before it started to affect her breathing. I turned to my sister, a public health nurse, and asked her what I should do if Karina's condition worsened. She was convinced it was COVID-19 from the symptoms we were experiencing, and advised me to call 911 if Karina started having trouble breathing. I looked into getting my family tested, but at the time, the criteria for being tested were limited to people who had been traveling outside Canada, or who knew someone with COVID-19. We didn't fit the bill, and were told to stay at home and self-isolate. While Karina sweated it out in bed, I stayed up thinking, 
trying to figure it out. If we did have COVID, where could we have caught it? Did we get it at the grocery store? On the subway? From friends? And then there was the dreaded flip side. Could we have passed COVID-19 along to others? It was a distressing thought. Beyond testing, I felt helpless. There was little I could do for Karina beyond making sure she had water and could breathe. The greatest challenge was trying to keep my distance from her, but I had to stay healthy for our daughter. Fortunately, the evidence at that point was already indicating that kids weren't really affected by the virus, and I had to believe that. But there was one thought I couldn't shake that kept me up each night more than Karina's coughing. Who would take our daughter if Karina and I ended up in hospital? Someone would have to put themselves at risk for Isla. How do you ask someone to do that? Four days in, after a long night of nonstop coughing, Karina turned a corner and seemed to stabilize. Fighting the virus, however, had left her seriously weak. Karina and I are both in our 40s, so aren't in a high-risk age group for COVID. But the exhaustion, she told me, was unlike anything she had ever experienced. She was barely able to get out of bed for the next week and struggled for breath every time she came upstairs from our bedroom for a drink. Faced with Karina's illness, the fact I couldn't smell was the least of my concerns, which was probably a good thing. I have a history of anxiety and OCD, and pandemics are generally not great for people like me. But as Karina's condition settled, and I grew less afraid for our daughter, I started to give my own situation more thought. More was being written about smell loss and COVID, and, like much of the reporting in the pandemic's first weeks, it was largely anecdotal and speculative. Nobody knew what the hell was going on, but I devoured everything I could find anyway. This is The National. I took in stories from CBC, New York Times, BBC, and NPR, which was easy. Alerts were popping up on my phone every few minutes, announcing new and terrifying developments. 55 deaths are now linked to COVID-19, the biggest surge in Quebec, reporting 10 new deaths. A big problem with coronavirus is you can have it and not know about it. It means you can go about your day as you've always Recognize symptoms of COVID-19. Fever, cough, and shortness of breath. But a lot of people are also talking about the loss of sense of taste and smell. About post-viral anosmia. That by itself is not unusual. I watched YouTube videos explaining smell loss, or anosmia as the condition is called, to understand what happens and, more importantly, if people recover and when. Several articles said loss of smell was an early indication of COVID-19 in patients who later ended up in intensive care. And with that, my anxiety mushroomed into increasingly frantic thoughts until I was certain COVID was coming for me. With no idea when I caught the virus, I figured I needed to get through another week before I could reasonably assume I was out of danger. Each day I woke up and could breathe was one step closer to freedom, which couldn't come soon enough. Anxiety is a skillful prankster, and the uncertainty of COVID-19 encouraged it, filling my head with dread and my throat and chest with phantom tickles. My loss of smell was starting to play tricks on me too. While for the most part things still tasted okay, an intense odor of smoke, as if there was a house fire in the neighborhood, followed me everywhere. Three weeks into losing my sense of smell, 
I began to accept that my bout with COVID-19 wasn't going to get worse. We were finally out of the woods, even if it still smelled like the woods were on fire. Given the pandemic's rapidly spiraling death toll, I was grateful we made it through our brush with COVID-19 almost unscathed. Almost. I was surprised I still couldn't smell, but I assumed the sense would gradually return. Then, April turned to May. Spring was in the air, but my nose had no idea. My daughter loves to pick flowers and hold them up for me to smell, but I could only play along. Inhaling as deeply as I could yielded just a faint trace of their fragrance. I started to think about the other smells I was missing that are so much a part of spring. The first rains of the season, the scent of fallen leaves exposed to the sun as the snow melts, fresh air through open windows. It was like living life in 2D, a dimension was gone. Smell adds nuance and texture that fills out our experience of everyday life. Imagine walking past your local bakery and not being tempted by the aroma of croissant or fresh bread. Or passing a coffee shop and not smelling the roasting beans. Without smell, life is just kind of flat. I caught myself reminiscing about my favorite smells and the times and places they would transport me to. Malt vinegar has me living off fish and chips as a bartender in Scotland in the mid-90s. Freshly mown grass sends me to my childhood in the suburbs of Ottawa. The tangy sweetness of my mum's homemade relish is the smell of fall. The stink of wet dog a happy reminder of my old golden retriever Willie. The smell of mandarin oranges and pine trees at Christmas. Around this time, I joined a Facebook group for people who lost their sense of smell to COVID-19, whose membership has since skyrocketed to more than 12,000 people. Run by a UK group called Absent, the group provided an outlet for those trying to make sense of this sudden disability. Curiously, Many reported losing their smell around the exact same time I did. I learned I was lucky that the virus hadn't altered how things smell and taste, turning favorite foods foul like it had for many others in the group. My luck in this department ran out around the three-month mark, when coffee, peanut butter, and chocolate suddenly acquired a moldy smell and taste that made me gag. In smell loss circles, this phenomenon is known as parosmia, a distortion of the sense of smell that warps it for the worse. Peanut butter was the first to really go off. A talented baker friend had taken up making sourdough bread during the lockdown, and I got into buying a weekly loaf from him. I started most mornings with a slice of that crusty joy covered in peanut butter, a happy ritual before diving into my slate of Zoom calls for work. That habit came to a screeching halt the morning I took a bite and the peanut butter tasted like mildew. Cucumber, carrots, cilantro, and minty toothpaste later joined the list, acquiring an odor and taste that blended flowers and diesel. Wine and beer also started tasting off on the first sip or two, but thankfully improved with persistence. 
Citrus became my nemesis. Anything citrus-based smelled like I was trapped in an elevator with someone wearing cheap perfume. My go-to soap and shampoo took on a creamy, mildly nauseating butter-like scent, so I switched to unscented. Once comforting smells were all off, the steam in the shower, my wife's pillow on a sunny morning, my daughter's hair after a bath, all had me holding my nose. Summer arrived, and all the scents that go with it were either lost in me or didn't smell right. I could sit right next to a barbecue and not smell it, but I could smell sunscreen, and it smelled awful. As the summer advanced without any signs of improvement, I started wondering what life would be like if my sense of smell never came back. We experience so much of the world through our nose. The first thing to greet many of us when we walk through the door after a long day is that familiar, comforting scent of home. Some smells unite us, like a home-cooked meal enjoyed with friends, while others can help to calm us and leave the world behind when we need to. Some scents embed themselves in our memory and leave an emotional imprint. Smelled again years later, they have a unique ability to trigger long-buried, often poignant memories. The soap we used to bathe Isla when she was a baby would suddenly cast me back to those early, sleep-deprived days. Sea breeze and wood smoke conjured my days roaming the tiny Scottish island where I tended bar one summer, lonely but never more alive. Smell is like the wardrobe in the Narnia Chronicles by C.S. Lewis, a gateway or mysterious shortcut to our emotional memory. And without the ability to smell, I'm scared this magical path to the past may disappear. Then, in September, the potential impact of this loss became much more real. On September 13th, my father died. I'm the youngest of five and Dad and I were extremely close. Our bond rooted in his love of sports and my adolescent abilities as a goalie and a pitcher. There are so many scents linked to those days with Dad at hockey rinks and baseball tournaments and our many road trips to Montreal to see the Expos and Canadians play. Locker rooms and goalie gear, hot chocolate and canteen coffee, hot dogs and popcorn, baseball mitts and big league chew bubblegum. Catching a trace of any one of these could conjure him for me and bring him close again. Now, when I need them most... Any one of these smells might have the power to suddenly bridge time, space, and now death, and connect me with Dad. It's difficult to think that link may be gone. It's been eight months now since I lost my sense of smell. I still hold out hope that it will return. I've heard from other people in the Facebook group that I joined that the warped odors I'm experiencing are potentially a sign that it's on the mend. Just the other day, I smelled bacon frying a few feet away from me in the kitchen for the first time in months. The significance of it didn't even register at first. After all, I've been smelling bacon for nearly 50 years and it just seemed normal. 
But then it hit me. Wait, I smell bacon. I turned to Karina and Isla and told them, I smell bacon. They looked at me, wondering why I was stating the obvious. But then they got it too. Ah, you smell bacon. I recently added to this with my discovery that peanut butter, while still far from perfect, is no longer as putrid as it once was. I mentioned this little victory to the Facebook group, and it was met with celebration. Good news is always welcome in the group. Smell loss has become a leading symptom of COVID-19 and a long-term consequence of the virus that has left millions unable to smell for months. With it still unknown if this disability is temporary or permanent, we all welcome these little wins. Like the rest of the group, I just want to wake up and have things smell like they should. My daughter's soap, my wife's shampoo, and the muffins they're baking while I tell you this. I just want spring to smell like spring, lemon to smell like lemon, and my baseball glove to remind me of my dad. Stephen Smith. His piece was produced by Allison Cook. It was edited by Allison, Mira Bertwentonic, and me. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Tanera McLean, Mark Apollonio, Sherry O'KK, Julia Poggle, and me. Althea Manassin is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren, and our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.